I was just thinking, whatever topic that comes after sex, you know, it's it's a hard one to follow. <laughs> How about a cigarette? A cigarette? <laughs> <laughs> you walked right into that. <laughs> and she's a hard act to follow, too. <laughs> What we had planned for this session was to um, have you explore instances that have come up in your chaplaincy that reflected your dharmology, challenged your dharmology, or made you wonder, what the heck is my dharmology? Like I thought the one Johanna... You know, it's like a wonderful example, you know? Like, since you know everything, could you please give me the definitive statement on this, you know? Um, So just think for a moment um, in terms of your belief structure and what experiences you've had in your chaplaincy. And given the context of today's conversations and you're working on your dharmology, that they stand out as, oh, and maybe the conversation really that happened within your chaplaincy really helped you articulate your demology or maybe it left you wondering you know hmm yeah. so the plan was to break up into groups again now we could either do it that or if you feel at this point in the afternoon you just like to do it as one large group which which would be more conducive to your thinking process and your discursive pro- discursive process at this time of day? Small. Small. Okay. Great. Fifteen. So we do um, three fours and a three. Five groups of three. Five threes. <laughs> so one person left, but somebody else can't. Yeah. Yeah. There's 16? There's 16. Okay, we'll do four groups of four. Okay, and maybe a different group from what you were in before. So an instance that, you, that sparked something significant in relationship to your dharmology. Can you give an example? Um, well, I, the example I gave was the one Johanna had, you know where someone approached her and made an assumption about her all-knowing Buddhism and then asked her f- to declare <laughs> you know, for, from her insightful place a, a wisdom that would clarify the whole situation for them. Or sometimes, you know, someone uh, in the midst of their suffering, you know, sometimes they bring up suicide. Say sometimes 
they bring up their own mortality, you know, or whatever it may be, okay? So we'll go four groups of four. So here's what I thought we could do. Each group of four could give a little synopsis, a little summary of what you just discussed, and then maybe some others may have a question about the dharmology that was part of that. And then we'll just go around the room and each group of four will report back on their conversation. <laughs> Forget a synopsis. Just, just do a, a, a summary. Just think of personal summary, personal impact summary. A personal impact summary. Okay, <laughs> but think of the dharmology. You know, that was what you were talking about, right? <laughs> Some brave person begin. Oh, great. This is actually quite selfish of me because it was my question. Um, and my understanding was that dermology as it relates to a challenging situation? Yes. Okay, good. I got that right. So, and it, and it struck me, I think after the retreat, that I've never heard this question arise, and with in a few different instances, one really profoundly, I've had uh, inmates in jail with a real strong need, and they'll ask me the question, where's God in Buddhism? And summarize how your group addressed that question? Yeah. I I was I I totally alphaed out on it. Like it was it was my question, and I finally because it came up right before I knew we were going to be to small groups, and and I've been meaning to. I, I just wanted to hear. So how did your group handle it? How did they I handled it? I, it was a scenario with me, and and by grace, I was with a chaplain in this situation where a guy asked me that and I was with the last day of Evelyn Vigil's 17 year run downtown San Jose and this guy asked me this he didn't like my answer and it was very upsetting and that, so I told him my personal story about it mm-hmm. and, um, and let's see and then it, it's, and what she said I said how did I do and uh, as a Christian chaplain that had been running uh, downtown San Jose for 17 years she goes well it's an impossible question and so that was sort of the, the impetus of, of the dialogue we had. Mm-hmm. And um, we just and talked about, one, one individual talked about being uncomfortable with um, um, a Catholic prayer that, that they felt, you know, like mm-hmm. apprehensive about um, a, a request of somebody um, asking, a ch- her, and the position of being a chaplain to recite a Catholic prayer. And, um, yeah. And another person, we talked about our dance with 
mm-hmm. whole concept of the creative force of the universe as it contrasts with Buddhism. Mm. It's about it. Okay. But any anyone else have any comments or questions on that? Where is God in Buddhism? And and I don't I didn't bring it up or I don't bring it up now as a theoretical question as much as as somebody is suffering and and they have something solid that they've been holding on to all their life and next thing you know they're in um, with the Buddhist chaplain and they look around the room and something's missing it's kind of energetically that's been my experience you know yes. so it's it's a need I just want to emphasize that it's not theoretical oh, it's, it's a very significant need if you think that although we all consider ourselves one way or another Buddhist, most of the people we're ministering to are, I think, more in a more theistic way. Exactly. And, and if someone asks you to pray, well then, are you faking it? By, or are you interpreting it in a way that works for you? Or, or, or what are you doing? So it, it's a very relevant... Uh, and significant question. So it's right. it's a good one to bring up. Anyone got any comments or questions about it? I think that it, it, what God, the concept of God, makes me think about um, like heart trainings in Buddhism. How when we practice. Um, like do meta meditation, we're not necessarily like when we think about someone who's suffering in our life that's not with us right now, and we wish them well, and we wish them to be happy, mm-hmm. and we don't, or I don't, do that because I actually think there's like some magic wave coming out of my meditation and going into their life and healing mm-hmm. them. That it's more of training my own heart to feel that way and be open to that feeling all the time. And so I think that the concept of God is similar. Like if someone believes in God and they need God in their prayer and they need God in whatever you're connecting with them on, I don't think it has to come down to like technicality of like, well, you know, Buddhism is non-theistic. If somebody wants God, like you can talk to them about God from a Buddhist perspective. You can talk to them about compassion. You can talk to them about love. You can talk to them about oneness. You can talk so to with, them. So within your, excuse me, within your dermology, your personal dermology, how would you characterize, identify, articulate the notion of God? I think it depends on whose, whose God it is and how they're believing it. Within your dermology. Within, within mine. God's another word for what the universe, energy, spirituality, the light in me, recognizing the light in you. Like that's how I would take it. Okay. So I would apply my kind of concepts of that, which are healing and wholesome mm-hmm. in whatever context that I can understand mm. and still be authentic. Yeah. Yeah. Any other um Responses to the question? What Amanda just said, yes. And um, I'm quite comfortable praying to 
Jesus. I'm quite comfortable playing, praying to, to, you know, however actually that concept comes out of my mouth or out of the, the patient's mouth. Um, I don't, the, the words just don't get in the way at all from the connection. You know, this is, this is you know, um, a connection between energy and the patient and me and we're pulling this energy down and we're, we're connecting. And so if I'm asking Jesus to be the conduit for that connection, that's fine by me. And that's what they need to hear. That's what that's what re, that's what resonates with mm-hmm. with that particular person. Because sometimes they will actually ask, "Who do you pray to? Do you pray to God? Do you pray to Jesus? You know, what 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 term do you use when you pray?" Sometimes I don't because it comes out, you know, in mm-hmm. conversation. But um, it, I just I don't I don't even feel it, it's just still the spiritual energy. The term isn't significant. Mm-hmm. Okay, thanks. Any other responses? Alan Woods. So another approach too is uh, to address what their need is to understand about God mm-hmm. in Buddhism. You know, what, where is this question coming from? No, tell me about this God that wants to incorporate itself into Buddhism. You know, so where is the foundation of that, and what is their belief? You know, mm-hmm. do they believe that God should be um, part of Buddhism, or do they believe that God is separate from the Buddhist faith? You know, so and then within your dharmology, Alan, how, uh, what's, what relevance or identity does that term have? In my dharmology, I, I do believe in the divine. Um, spirit um, and therefore um, I agree with Susan is that if we're praying for someone it's my de- my name for whoever we're praying for um, or their name for is the same as that spiritual guidance mm-hmm. you know if it's in the name of Jesus Christ um, it's the same thing as in the name of Allah which is in the same name as Buddha and his teachings. Mm-hmm. You know, it's my dharm- my Buddhist dharmology is that um, there is a divine spirit, and, and is, his teachings is, is that came divine in the form spirit. Of- Pardon? Does that divine spirit abide within you? Abide out out of you? That's the divine or- spirit that I believe in resides in my heart. Yes. And that it is through Buddhist teachings that we can show this loving kindness and compassion, and um, that's coming from my own heart and from the Buddhist teachings. Hmm. Okay. Thank you. Anyone else? Do you find yourself agreeing with these? Do you find yourself thinking, well, I wouldn't quite put it like that, I'd put it more like this, or how? How have these definitions so far, how have they um, registered for you? So, yeah, I would um, I, I would take the question personally and then 
sort of hand it back so it's, I can say I can say where God is for me in Buddhism right for, for me through through meditation and th- through my my practice and my way of being in the world I feel I just have a heartfelt connection with with something I would call God and I um, I get a sense of wonder out of out of there being some mystery to that of of God being something beyond my personal comprehension, and I know that doesn't work for everyone. So, um, so I'm I'm interested, like Ellen was saying, I'm interested in like what's what's making this question come alive for you. But I would I would want to give a piece of myself, like like get some skin into the game. Like this is this is where I'm at with this. Where are you at? Make that an invitation into a conversation. Like what are you what are you feeling? And like where is where is God or where is the absence of God coming in for you? And mm-hmm. and then then we could talk about how Buddhism can help explore that space or not. Hmm. And within your own dharmology, how would you relate to the term God? So I mean dharmology, so so Buddhism like the Buddhist teachings that I have heard don't really talk about God. I think of Buddhism as a mm-hmm. non-theistic tradition, meaning sort of, um, uh, you know, just doesn't say much one way or another about God. Um, but my, like sort of the result of my practice, I was brought up as a Christian, and I have some some feelings, some spiritual feelings, some a sense of connection with God that's kind of left over from that. Um, I think Jennifer once called herself a Christian mystic. Mm-hmm. And, um, and as I've learned more about mysticism since you said that, I feel, I feel kind of a connection to that, that identity. Um, but to me, in my dharmology, the dharma is a very experiential thing. Like you can fill your head up with s- stories and mm-hmm. views of dharma it doesn't it's not it's not helpful until it like connects right so and in my dharmology i wrote here's my belief system and then here's my practices mm-hmm. i'm sorry it's kind of long um and i send it to you this yeah. morning yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but here's my practices and the practices to me that's that's what's important yeah. so so as i practice as I put my beliefs into practice and as I mm-hmm. use the tools and techniques that I've learned, what is my experience? And a lot of my experience has to do with a sense of, of wonder and um, a certain amount of, of uh, surrender to, to God. So in 12 step to mm-hmm. turning my life over to a, a higher power, that, that sentiment resonates strongly Mm-hmm. with me like i am just a little tiny piece in a really big thing and i am the universe is not here for me the universe made me for its own purpose and what i do is a part of that purpose and um and to me there's just this this delight and sense of love in being connected to that so is that answering your question because it I feel like i'm actually stepping away from the original question and just talking about myself um it, it answered my question, but a little bit indirectly. So I'm going to 
try on what I concluded from what you said, which was that within your dharmology, or maybe more particularly within how you practice, the term God doesn't have much relevance. Uh, that's, that's how you're related to being asked to determine it, to define it. There's an element of my practice. Um, so, uh, so from the Christian tradition, there's Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, like the night before he's arrested to be crucified, and uh, he's having this conversation with with God, right? About do I need to do I need to die for this? And and he says, "Let Thy will, not mine, be done." So to me, that's I mean, that's like. That's a very rich uh, teaching. That's like that's very. Reading that was like, just a, like a light comes on for me, and so. I don't know if that has to connect to, the word God in particular, but that sentiment of, um, this is not all about me. Not even my life is all about me. Um, mm-hmm. That to me, that's a doorway into mysticism and spirituality and the, the Dharma, the, the practice of the Dharma. Yeah. And, and I think in a way you just repeated with, with another facet of that it's an experiential process that, that isn't based on a, a conceptual identity. Of God? Of God. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, for me it's for me it's very experiential. Yeah. Right. For someone else, I'm I'm happy to talk about something more concrete if that's what they need. Yes. Um and any other so thank you, everybody. I think that was a interesting thing to bring up. We have a couple more minutes. Was there any other interesting, any other question of uh, Dharmology that seemed strong for you? Um, basically, I found this assignment super hard and um, really struggled a lot. And now when I'm hearing these conversations, I'm starting to hear like prompts that were like, oh, maybe I could have talked about that. Or There was something about it that just, I got so stuck. And, um, and I got it done, but it doesn't feel like what I wrote really articulates what you're talking about. Yeah. You know? Because yeah. I don't think I got it ahead of time. Uh-huh. Um, and like, now that I'm thinking about my patient, the woman I visit every week, like she brings up questions that, mm-hmm. in a way, could be like good prompts for me to think about. Um, like she'll say things like, why has God, 
although she doesn't really talk about God. She's a Tibetan Buddhist, but she does bring mm. up God sometimes. She'll say, like, why has God punished me? Or why has God abandoned me? Mm. Um, my karma, like, I'm, I, you know, I must have done really bad things in past lives to have been given this stroke, mm. you know. And, um, and then, you know, Buddha taught that God is everywhere, um, I like Buddhism better than Catholicism because she was raised by, she says, very mean Catholic nuns. Um, but that she feels like Buddha t- taught that God is in us, God is everywhere. Um, but anyway, all these these really mm-hmm. juicy kind of questions come up, and um, I don't know how to answer them, you know. But they're they're places of exploration or a place of place to start, I guess. Um, and then she often says, like, why should I go on? I think I said that already. But, you know, the amount of suffering that she has, like, why? You know, like, what's the point of going on? Mm-hmm. You know? Um, and it feels really hard. It just, you know, I'm I'm uh, a practitioner that hasn't studied with a teacher one-on-one. Um, and... You know, I'm not at divinity school, so it's like trying to figure out like where to place all of this and what's like my authentic experience of this. What's I feel like I'm trying to find my voice, and I'm I'm really struggling with that. You know, like what do I really believe, and how do I articulate that? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, well, maybe the next time you have an interview with one of us. You can torture us with those questions. Okay, that'd be great. (laughs) But what we'll do is we'll try to help you find your answer because that's the nature of our practice, right? It's not like, well, here's the the answer we're all supposed to have, you know? It's just not the nature of our practice. That's a different introduction to chaplaincy with a different tradition. Yes, exactly. Okay, so, yes? Well, you said we could ask you questions in the teacher interview. What happens when class is over, and then what if we still want to explore our dharmology? Can we still ask you questions that can build off of our papers? You can contact us, and, and, and we, we would hope that your dharmology would, I mean, I, I think we would be a little concerned if you thought, okay, now I know everything. <laughs> you know? <laughs> you know? <laughs> well, that certificate, though. <laughs> but you guys know everything, right? Oh, oh yeah. <laughs> if you think way back to the start of the day, when I was talking about resolve and saying, yes, and this, Part of the function of this is the the continual, you know, stay true. Well, well, stay true to what? Well, that we're continually exploring, you know. And it's that which brought us here, and that which we're still discovering what it is. You know, it's it's an alive process. Okay, so thank you.
So uh, we're going to bring the day to an end with the kind of usually have a little ritual ending. And um, so the, the, the parami is resolve or aditana. And with all these paramis, it's an interesting exercise to consider um, uh, where it's placed in the sequence. And it uh, follows the parami on truth. Why, was, why does resolve follow the parami on truth? How does truth establish a foundation for resolve? And then uh, what we're going to see for next time is um, uh, the next parami is uh, metta, maitri, loving kindness. So how is it that resolve is a foundation for metta? What's the connection between these two? And so there's kind of a, almost like a path that goes through these paramis, a path of development or growth or one sets a stage for the next and so, you know, to be resolved on truth, to, be, to know what truth is and be committed to it, to be inspired by it. And one of the things that I learned that was very meaningful for me is that as I practiced, that um, the idea of uh, uh, intention and aspiration, a resolve, a vow, uh, that it was something that welled up from inside uh, in a sense that... Um, uh, that um, uh, this heart of mine or this system that I am, uh, it was responding to the world in a way that could be put into a, word, a, a phrase like a vow or a commitment. That, you know, and so I, I was actually very happy to be practicing a Zen center where they have four vows or four aspirations or resolves that they repeat, I think every day they repeat it as a, a chant. And... Um, and uh, I thought it was pretty wonderful and profound and universal. Um, and then they changed the words on me. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> so in my heart, it's the old wording. I didn't, my heart didn't kind of make the transition. But uh, it was uh, the, the bodhisattva vow um, that um, beings are numberless, I vow to save them. Desires are... Uh, inexhaustible, I vow to end them. Uh, Dharma gates are boundless, I vow to enter them. And Buddha's way is unsurpassable, I vow to become it. And all these vows are kind of like impossible to fulfill. But uh, for me, they were meaningful because they seemed to give voice to something that was bubbling up from inside. And, uh, and it was more like I recognized myself in those vows, I reckon, or they were a mirror for something that was happening as I was practicing. And uh, so they became quite important for me and became quite valuable for important for me to be able to state them and use those vows as a kind of an express, as a acknowledgement or a public statement to myself or to others. Yes, this is what my life is organized around. Uh, it was organized around this aspiration or vow that was bubbling up from inside, but to actually give voice to it and name it uh, made it was a really important difference. And it was kind of also to make a commitment to it because it was very easy to lose touch with this thing that was so primary and central to my life that uh, sometimes I, I refer to as a kind of compassionate urge or compassionate wish to meet the suffering of the world. And so uh, at Zen Center we would chant this and it was kind of like making a commitment to it. Especially when I was ordained as a Zen priest. Uh, I felt that, oh, this, this now is, like this, my life is, I'm committing myself to have my life oriented around this. And, uh, and that still lives in me very strongly. Uh, even though I don't function as a Zen priest anymore, the, the vows I took around these bodhisattva vows 
still motivates me or guides me or or keeps me in touch with some of this this underlying thing. So, um, and you, fi- you find that the idea of vows or stated aspirations is really uh, 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 permeates almost all forms of Buddhism. There's something very powerful about having a vow or having an aspiration that's voiced and stated and organized in, in, in a way. It doesn't have to be anything like the traditional, you know, these four bodhisattva vows. It can be a very personal one. And the example in Mahayana Buddhism is that every Buddha that ever existed, it's going to exist, will come up with a personal vow or personal set of vows. <clears throat> and we just received, the tradition received one particular set. But there's many, many, there's, there's, there's texts that have thousands and thousands of vows that different Buddhas will, you know, have, have stated. And I, I interpret that to mean that, you know, kind of it's very personal, this thing. And uh, what, what's personally coming out of you and what wants to be acknowledged, what wants to be expressed, when you tap into the truth in this deep way and comes out of you. So I wanted to read a couple of um, statements about uh, that comes out of the Theravada tradition. This is in the, 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 the treatise on the Paramis. Um, Whoever has an aspiration for full awakening should, for the sake of fulfilling the perfections, always be devoted to what is proper for an intent on service. The person should be zealous in providing for the welfare of beings and from time to time, day by day, should reflect, have I accumulated merit and knowledge today? What have I done for the welfare of others? One of the interesting statements here is that it goes back and forth between a kind of self-care and care for others. So it's, uh, uh, um, so it's, it's asking yourself the question, what have I accumulated, how have I accumulated merit and knowledge today? That can be more for yourself. Merit is more a personal thing. And then what have I done for the welfare of others is for others. And so this juxtaposition, this balancing these two, or these are working to not one or the other, but how do, you, how do we tend to and care for both of these? And in my own practice, this aspiration to be compassionate that they welled up from inside, uh, I have no basis to distinguish the object of that compassion from the person who's here and the person's people are out there. It seems like it's equally, in, you know, wherever the suffering is, that's where the, that radiance meets. And so to have a separation and blinders on for one or the other doesn't make sense to me. And I love it that this goes back and forth. Um, if you want to attain full awakening, which is a little more personal, then be of service to others. Um, um, the primary condition of the perfections is great aspiration expressed as follows. So this is kind of like, this is a Theravada version of the four bodhisattva vows. Having crossed over um, the river of the, the floods of suffering, having crossed over, I will cross others over. Being free, being free, I will free others. Tamed, I will tame others. Calmed, I will calm others. Comforted, I will comfort others. Having attained nirvana, I will lead others to nirvana. Purified, I will purify others. Awakened, I will awaken others. 
So this, again, you have this juxtaposition of self and other and, you know, and the distinction is there, but it kind of remains a distinction, but also is inseparable from each other. And uh, in this, uh, so here's another example of a vow that, you know, one Buddhist tradition will refer to and talk to and keep up. And um, so what is your vow? What is the vow or the aspiration or the heart's deepest intention that lives in you? And, um, and maybe you don't have words for it. Maybe you don't even know it yet. Maybe you have an intuition of it. <clears throat> but might there be something that gives voice to it? Some expression, some words, one word. Could it be in the form of a vow? Could it be a form of a poem? Could it be a, you know, what, 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 what is it that gives voice to what orients you and that you're organized your life around and, or that you would like your life to be about? And what happens to you when you actually can give it voice, give it an expression, give, give words to it? So that, that's the, uh, what I'd like to encourage you to reflect on and think and leave. But for now, as an ending, I thought we would uh, stand together and we could, um, uh, uh, maybe we could uh, recite the Bodhisattva vows. And if you, uh, there's a, I once heard a talk by Ajahn Amaro that inspired me, and I think I put it in one of my articles somewhere, maybe it's on the web or on the website, uh, that the four um, Bodhisattva vows are an alternative expression of the four noble truths. So that's, I, lo- I love that, to kind of make that connection between these different teachings. And um, since I'm, you know, Paul seems to tell me that uh, I don't know everything, I'm always learning and trying to learn, being open to learning. I think that what we'll do is have Paul lead that Zen, Ma, the new Zen Center version of the Four Bodhisattva Vows and teach it to us. And I think that's it, what you just said. Uh, that's the old one, isn't it? Still, still good. Yes, yeah, still good. Still, still what we do. Oh, is it? I thought you had a whole other thing. That, uh, it's just one word. One, what was the word that changed? It's delusion instead of, uh, delusion instead of um, what, what you have Delusion, I about to end them? No, what, what do you have there? Well, this, is, this, is, this is what it is? Delusions. Oh, okay. oh, oh, because I said desires. You said desires. Yeah, yeah. That, oh. It's become delusions now rather than desires. We have delusions written there. So we'll do delusions. Yeah. Okay, well, so... so um, we can say delusions and desires. Yeah, with all... Okay, so... So we'll do it in two... two oh, we're going to wait. And um, the... Um, Yeah, there's <clears throat> and um, how many of you have been part of a Buddhist tradition where vows have been important? And have they been meaningful for you? Or? Yes. <laughs> In uh, Burma, there's... Um, uh, precepts for lay people, either five or sometimes there's eight. That uh, like if you're on retreat, there's eight. And in Burma, sometimes they add one more, and uh, that I never heard of before. 
uh, except in Burmese tradition. And, um, and it's a kind of a vow uh, to have loving kindness. And that, that was kind of, kind of interesting to have these precepts, you know, not killing, stealing, sexual misconduct, not um, lying and not intoxicating oneself, and maintain your loving kindness. Mm, that was kind of beautiful. Maybe that should be the last writing assignment of the year. We're going to write your vow. Maybe. That would be nice. Maybe bring it to the closing. So, repeat after me. Maybe we should do this as a, as a ceremony. We should. And, uh, and even though if these particular words don't me, aren't meaningful you, for you personally, maybe there's some way that you can translate them into something that's comparable that does speak to you. Beings are numberless. Beings are numberless. I, I vow to free them all. Delusions are inexhaustible. Delusions are inexhaustible. I vow to end them all. I vow to end them all. Dharma gates are boundless. Dharma gates are boundless. I, bu- I vow to enter them all. I vow to enter them all. Buddha's way is unsurpassable. Buddha's way is unsurpassable. I vow to become it. May our vows, may our commitment, may our practice, may our merit be for the welfare and benefit for all beings in all directions, including the direction that goes to you. May all beings be happy and well. So, thank you. And, and uh, so we should set up the room. We don't think we cleaned the bathrooms today, so I don't know if anybody has a chance to stay a little bit behind and tidy up. It would be appreciated. Our dinner reservation's at 5.30, so... So you have a few minutes. Yeah. Great, thank you. Enjoy.